You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. We're in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 23 together. Follow along with me. You don't have to read out loud with me. Just follow along with me. Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own way by another way, to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah, Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he might be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together this Sunday, immediately following this big day of celebration that that we call Christmas. 
Um, Father, I ask that you would come and be powerfully present among us as we kind of press pause in the midst of the craziness of the season. As we press pause to hear your word preached, I pray that you would come and speak to us, speak to the deep recesses and reservoirs of our hearts, these places in our hearts that need rest, places in our hearts that need healing, places in our hearts that need to be restored, encouraged, and renewed with hope. Maybe even places in our hearts that need to be rebuked because we've been hardened against you. Pray, God, that you would come and speak through your word. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This uh, passage in front of us today is full of really two basic categories that I want to try to unpack a little bit and, uh, and maybe just, maybe like a, uh, a guide, kind of guide us through the text based on two really basic categories. Those two categories are contrast and provision. It's really what's taking place in the text. Those are the two main categories, contrast and provision. The contrast between the wickedness of King Herod and then the worshipful obedience of the wise men and Joseph. That's the stark contrast throughout the text. It's stark. And I think it's also a sobering reality um, that we not only see in the text, but we see being played out in the world around us. So you have this contrast between wickedness and worshipful obedience. But woven into this tale of that contrast between wickedness and worshipful obedience is also this really fine thread. At times it may appear to be invisible, and at times you just may not even notice it, but woven throughout the tale is this fine thread of what I would call divine intervention. Divine intervention, which is divine provision, All throughout the text, in the background of this tale of evil intent, as well as worshipful hearts, really is the work of God in the background, all throughout. It's the work of God the Father who has caused His Son Jesus, our Savior, to uh, be born into the darkness of Satan's sin and death, right? that's, That's the provisionary story that's taking place in the midst of this contrast of wickedness and worshipful obedience. He brought Jesus into the world to be the fulfillment of the prophets, right? The fulfillment of the prophets who spoke of a coming Savior, and they've been speaking of a coming Savior for centuries before his birth. And actually, four times in the text, Matthew draws our attention to the fact That what is happening here, what is happening in these events immediately following the birth of Jesus has actually been prophesied for centuries. Four times we draws our attention to that. In the midst of the insanity of the wickedness of King Herod as he schemes and he he plots to murder innocent babies, right? That's That's his plot. It's horrific. In his 
hate-filled campaign of the slaughter of innocent babies. In the midst of that, we still see the provision of God the Father as he warns the wise men, right? As he gives instructions to Joseph to, to keep baby Jesus safe from harm. So it really is a tale of contrast and provision. A tale of the contrast, again, between wickedness and worshipful obedience. A tale of provision as God shows up. He shows up according to his very own centuries-old plan of redemption. Think about those two categories as we work our way through the text. Look first uh, with me at, at the wise men and King Herod. Think about them and this contrast between them. As the contrast between the wise men and King Herod, I think, is overwhelmingly obvious throughout the text, but the provision of God the Father, I don't think, can be missed either if you're looking for it, right? The wise men, what do they do? They show up in Jerusalem. What are they doing? They're looking for baby. The king of the Jews, they say. That phrase is important. They want to find the king of the Jews so that they might worship him. What does King Herod do in response to that? What does he feel? He feels threatened, right? He's the king. And there's some baby somewhere being hailed as the new king by some weird wise men who are following a star. So what does he do? Well, he doesn't bow down and worship to this king. He gathers some of the religious scholars of his day, asks them to explain what's going on, and they explain to him what's happening with this baby king that's coming into the world. And once, once uh, King Herod actually learns who this baby king is going to be, when he's going to come, and, and where he's going to be born, what does he do? He, he hatches an evil plan to actually use these wise men to help him get close to baby Jesus, right? Why? So that he can take him out of the picture, so that he can secure his earthly throne of power. Once again, the contrast between wickedness and worshipful obedience, it's on display right in front of us in this story. But as the tale unfolds, the wise men continue following the star, right? And then they find baby Jesus. And what do they do when they find him? They fall on their knees. They fall on their faces in worship of this baby king. And then they head back home by a completely different route. Because in the provision of God the Father, they have been warned about Herod's wicked plan, right? This is the story arc so far in this first section as we look at contrast and provision. The provision of God the Father is always present where wickedness seems to prevail. It may be hard to see. It may seem at times that wickedness is actually prevailing in the world that we live in, in your own personal experience of the world we live in. It may seem that wickedness is absolutely prevailing and you can't even see through the darkness. 
It may seem that wickedness is winning the day in despite, despite those of us who would worship God in spirit and in truth and in obedience. But the reality about God the Father, the reality about God the Father is that he's no pansy ruler like King Herod. He's no pansy ruler who relies on deception or relies on destruction to maintain his earthly power or influence. He doesn't need to. God is a faithful father. He's a faithful father who foresaw every moment of wickedness and pain that would happen in this world. And it's not as though God responded to something he didn't know was going to happen. God does not need to react or respond because God is ruler. He's in absolute control. I won't even dive super deeply into the concepts of God's complete sovereignty over evil and whether he would cause or allow difference between those two words, things to happen. I would fear that it may be too much for us to try to uh, dig into. But I would encourage you to maybe begin that journey sometime and see what the Lord might do in your heart, the difference between causing something and allowing something, and see where you land. At the end of the day, we can agree on this. God the Father foresaw every moment of wickedness that would happen. And he carefully hatched a plan from before the foundations of the world to provide a Savior, Jesus. To be born into this world of wickedness. Why? So that Jesus could live the life that you and I cannot live. So that Jesus can give his perfect life away at the cross of Calvary. So that Jesus could pay the price at that cross that you and I could never be paid. You and I could never ransom or redeem ourselves back from the presence and the power and the penalty of our own wicked sin. I would even go so far as to say that even the day that you said yes does not hold enough power to save you <laughs> if it weren't for God providing Jesus Amen. and providing you with the faith and the ability to confess Christ as your Savior. Amen. Now, you and I may not be King Herod, but the truth is, there is a little bit of keen hair in every one of us. Maybe more than any of us wants to uh, identify. There's at least a little bit of keen hair in every one of us. Thankfully, God the Father saw our wickedness. He saw our rejection of Him. He saw our desires for earthly comfort, earthly power, earthly control, earthly prestige. He saw all of that long before we had the chance to act upon our sin-filled impulses, right? And what he did was he provided from the get-go a way of escape so that we might worship King Jesus. 
in wholehearted, grateful obedience. If you want to know what freedom really is, freedom isn't living in America, guys. True freedom is being set free from the bondage and the chains of your sin and being enabled to love and to worship God as your Father and your Savior. That's true freedom. With that kind of freedom, you can live in any circumstance on any place in this world. Because true freedom is not dictated by your earthly circumstances. True freedom is dictated by the condition of your heart, which can only be made and created by the Father who made you and sent his Son to redeem you. You see the contrast and the provision all over, don't you know? The story's not over. Second thing we see is Joseph flees to Egypt, right? And Herod, what does he do? <coughs> he murders a bunch of babies. Rotten, no good, scumbag. I don't know what else to say. And you know, yet at the same time, as rotten as Herod was in this, there was an opportunity for him to be saved from that sin. There was. We will all be surprised, I believe, to see who we see in heaven. There's no sin that you or I could commit that is outside the reach of God's redeeming work at the cross in Christ. No matter how many babies you've killed, that's the reality. I mean, that, that's the truth of, from the text. You look at this section in verses 13 through 18, and once again, <clears throat> the provision of God is front and center, right? As an angel gives Joseph instructions to flee to Egypt to protect Jesus from King Herod's murderous rampage, all of this is in fulfillment of God's centuries-old plan, right? According to the prophet Hosea, Joseph, of course, obeys the instructions of God that have been provided to him through the angel. Which really, if you look at that and you think about that, that is an act of worship in and of itself. Obedience is worship. It's not legalism. It's worship. It's legalism when you think you have to obey to please God. It's worship when you say, oh, man, I just want to please God because he's my good daddy who saved me. It's two different sides of the coin. Sounds the same, even uses some of the same words. There's a heart difference in that. It's an act of worship when, when Joseph obeys. It's an act of worship every time you and I obey as we are empowered by this Holy Spirit. King Herod, on the other hand, what's he doing? He's following through with his murderous plan to take out the baby king. What does he do? He slaughters children throughout the region under the age of two. The whole picture of that is so horrific to me. You know, I have seven children of my own and now a few grandbabies and others on the way. And I think if my grandson Ezra is just going to turn two here shortly. If I was living in that region, imagine that baby being ripped out of your arms and murdered in front of you. I can't imagine the horror and the pain that was experienced in this season under the hand of wicked King Herod. Crazy thing, and here's one of the hard things to wrestle with. This goes back to, this goes back to cause and allow. Verses 
again, tough topic that I'm only going to like tiptoe towards and then allow everyone to just do your own study. It won't be hard to know where I land. It's crazy because unbeknownst to King Herod, the text actually tells us, Matthew tells us that this whole thing is once again a fulfillment of part of God's plan. So fulfillment of what the prophets foresaw. <coughs> you look at that in verses 16 through 18. Jeremiah is the one who prophesied this in Jeremiah 31 15. Seems absolutely nuts to me that God would stand idly or passively by. The crazy thing is, is that I know that our God is not a passive God. There's no passivity in God. God is active. He's actively involved in every aspect of the world. Seems crazy to me that God would stand by as King Herod murders innocent children. The question that would be on my lips if I was one of those parents would be, God, where are you? The other question that would be on my lips in that moment would be, is God really good? Is God really faithful? How could God be faithful? How could God be good and allow this to happen? Lots of ways to explain it away. And I, and I won't spend a bunch of time there. I will just say that I can imagine this. I can imagine that there is a special kind of justice in God's plan for people like King Herod, who would either misuse or abuse or destroy the lives of innocent children. And at the same time as I say that, I also know that there is a special kind of mercy and a special kind of grace available to anyone who would have or has misused or abused or destroyed the lives of innocent children. Because along with justice in the character of God, along with that piece of his character of justice, we also get a God who is merciful and loving and gracious. So while it seems crazy that this would happen, it seems crazy that this is part of God's plan, I can rest assured that if a person like King Herod, who presumably never repents, never confesses sin, never confesses faith in Christ, never asks for forgiveness for his wickedness, if he never knelt down in surrender or submission to our Savior as the Lord of his life, then I think I can with confidence say that Herod and anyone like him in that category would never take place or take part in, never partake in the grace and the mercy that is extended towards him in the cross of Jesus as Jesus took upon himself the very wrath that was due to people like King Herod. So I will believe, and I think confidently from the scriptures, that a man like King Herod, who never comes to Jesus in repentance and faith, a man like Herod will eventually die, right? It's appointed for all people once, at least, sometimes twice, according to some of the movies and books that have been written. It's appointed to all people at least once to die. 
And Herod will eventually die and face the penalty of his sin in full measure, right? As the, the very presence of the wrath of God is poured out upon him since he never bowed his knee to a baby king who offered far more. Offered far more than earthly power. Offered far more than earthly control. Far more than earthly comfort because he offered eternal salvation. But because he rejected that and actually went to war with Jesus and tried to kill him, I imagine, I imagine he's in a great place of judgment and wrath today. Deservedly so. So once again, <clears throat> you got contrast, you got provision on display, even in this portion of the story. The story's not completely over yet. And you can keep saying that all day long, right? Because we're only in chapter 2 of Matthew. <laughs> the story's not over yet. And we're still here today, so the story's not over yet. But our story for today is not over yet. The last thing you see in the text is uh, Herod actually does die, right? Matthew records that. Herod does die, and Joseph returns to Israel, verses 19 through 23. You're looking at that section, and you see an angel of the Lord appears provisionally to Joseph in a series of two dreams. And lets Joseph know that those who actually sought to kill baby Jesus, they're now dead. He can now return to Israel. Of course, Joseph, as we said earlier, a man of worshipful obedience, what does he do? He follows through on God's instructions. He returns to Israel, settles in a city called Nazareth, which once again is a fulfillment of now Isaiah's prophecy. There have been three different prophets alluded to by Matthew. I would say Matthew did a good job of studying the scriptures that he had available to him. Fulfills Isaiah's prophecy that the Savior would be a Nazarene, which is a connection to the priestly nature of Christ. The Nazarite priests were a section in and of themselves. And I could spend time going there, but I would just say for him to be known as a Nazarene connects the priestly office of Jesus. So I'll take an aside and a quick bunny intro because I know I'm ahead of time, surprisingly. Um, when you look at Jesus, you, you find Jesus in three categories, three offices, you might say, or you might say three hats or three titles, however you want to say it. He's prophet, priest, and king. Prophet speaks truth, priest comes alongside and shepherds, king rules. All of us have a responsibility and a wiring and a calling to that. There are some who like to try to separate those and be like, oh, you know, man, Joe, he's really keenly and kind of prophetic. Maybe more pathetic than prophetic, but... And then we have, we have Patrick, who just seems very priestly, just very safe, love to be around him, you know, and so on and so forth. And so people love to do something. And I think that there's some warrant to that. I also think there's definitely some warrant to the fact that each of us has the ability inside of us to be very keenly, organize things, right? Love to see the big picture, put pieces together where they should be and move pieces around. Very much like a CEO, maybe. Boss man, right? Um, Priestly, this is somebody who you want to call this person when they when you are having a rough day, because they might counsel you well, come alongside of you well, and create a safe place for you. Um, prophet. There are days when each of us needs a good, strong, stern word to keep us on the straight and narrow, right? I think all of us have those abilities. All of us have pieces of that. There may be something that's more prevalent in each one of us than the other. Um, but it's an aspect of how God 
in creation through Jesus places his image in us. That's the image that King Herod, and I would go further just to say that the force behind and inside of King Herod was trying to take out. Okay, but from the very get-go in the Garden of Eden, we know this is true. A war started, there was enmity <coughs> between the serpent and the seed of the woman. Who do you think the seed of the woman is? Jesus. Interestingly, uh, I won't even, no, yep. Interestingly, from the get-go, God had designed, I said this last week, God had designed um, sexual intimacy to be the way that he would bring our Savior into the world. Now, if you look around us in the world, not just today, but all the way back through biblical history, where has most of the contention between the forces of good and evil been? The area of sexual intimacy. What's right, what's wrong, what does God say, what does God not say, so on and so forth. It's, it's very prevalent all throughout the scriptures because that is the story going on in the background, right? And through that, God is placing his image on us. Sin in our lives destroys that image. Satan is always constantly trying to destroy that image because why? He wants worship for himself. So, in this text, as we come down to the end of it, the wicked king dies. All of his earthly power, all of his earthly prestige, lost. Because you can't take it with you. Presumably, Herod finds himself in a place of eternal judgment. Again, under the wrathful hand, under the hand of the presence of the wrath of our God. Well, Jesus, in contrast, is doing what? He's the true king of kings. He's the true Lord of lords. He is safe. He's sound in the city of Nazareth. And he's beginning to grow into the man who's going to ultimately, with great joy and predetermined determination, he's going to climb up on a cross. He's going to pay the price for the sins of his people. He's going to rise out of the grave victorious as the eternal king who then vanquishes Satan's sin and death into the abyss for all of eternity. That's the story. Right? That's the categories of contrast and provision just, man, filled out for us, right? Couldn't we just spend like another hour? No, you're all like, no, please don't spend another hour. Couldn't we just spend hours Reading through the text, I could. I just love God's word. You spend hours just reading through this text again and thinking about the ways in which contrast shows up and, and intersects with wherever you're at in life right now and the ways that God's provision just shows up and intersects provisionally uh, in your life right now. I hope that maybe uh, a short sermon of less than an hour would not feel to you like, oh, uh, my plate is full of food. I can't wait till next Sunday when I get another plate of food. Because that would be stupid, wouldn't it? How foolish would we be to think I only eat one meal a week? Well, this is just the day when you get served up a plate of food. The rest of the week, you ought to be serving yourself some food. And maybe this would just wet your whistle for some of the food that's being dished up 
and you'd make some of that same food the rest of the week. And maybe you would just dive into this text for hours. Because when it comes to meaning and application, there is no end. Because God's word is living and active and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it cuts deeper than the smallest portions and pieces of your bones. And it can lay you naked before your creator and exposed. Where you can be truly loved. But you can't be truly loved when you're hiding out behind a closed door. So in conclusion, I want to say this. When you think about the contrast and the provision in the story, ultimately the contrast in this entire story is actually the contrast between a wicked earthly king on the one hand who is actually defeated by death, thank you Jesus, and the other side of that is a gracious and loving king who defeats death, thank you Jesus, right? I love that contrast when you think of it that way. You think about the provision in this story, right? The provision in this story is a centuries-old, carefully laid-out plan. And that plan is to bring our redeeming King Jesus into this world as a baby who will do what? He's going to live to die. Why? So that others who die may truly live forever. Can I say all that again? I just love the way that it comes together. Ultimately, the contrast in this entire story, when you look at it, it's the contrast between a wicked, earthly king who has been defeated by death. And then on the other side, you have a gracious and loving king, Jesus, who defeats death. Thank you, Lord. And then the provision in this story is this, like I said, centuries old, carefully laid out plan to bring our redeeming King Jesus into this world as a baby who will do what? He's going to live to die so that others who die may truly live forever. Man, see, that gets me jacked up, right? I don't know about you. When I think about the contrast, I think about the provision all throughout this narrative, all throughout this story, man, I, I feel a, a sense of being humbled. I, I, I feel a sense of my hope being renewed. Like, for you, I don't know what kind of evil or wickedness you've been involved in. I don't know what kind of evil or wickedness you've been wounded by. I don't know what kind of evil or wickedness you are afraid of. I don't know your life story. Some of you I do. I can't see all the places where God the Father has met you at some intersection of life where wickedness has, has its, had its way in your life. I don't know where he's met you and called you to surrender to him in obedient worship. Here's what I do know. I know that each and every one of us has a choice to make. When God the Father meets us in the midst of this dark and perverse world. Now when I start talking about choice, you may be wondering. There was that whole conversation about causation and allowing. And I know it can be confusing. Do I really have a choice? Yes, absolutely. You have a choice. God may have spoke to you in the midst of this sermon and in this moment may have, by the power of his spirit,
given you a brand new heart, a heart with which you can respond freely and say, I want to worship Jesus. I want to trust in my Savior. I don't want to reject him anymore. I now see that I lived my life more like a King Herod. Maybe didn't slaughter babies, but lived my life opposed to him. And in this moment, maybe God's meeting you in the midst of that darkness and waking you up. I do know this. At the end of the day, we all have a choice. You can either be like King Herod, fight for every ounce of earthly pleasure, every ounce of earthly comfort, every ounce of earthly power or control that you can somehow muster up in your little fists. Or you can be like the wise men. You can be like Joseph, open-hearted, open-handed, responding to God's faithful intervention in, in your life. In those moments... You can obediently submit, you can obediently surrender, obediently worship Him right in the midst of the darkness. The way that you do that is you find this space, this really beautiful space that I talk about every Sunday. It's a space that's filled with three anchor points for Christianity, for a believer. And those three anchor points are the shadow of the bloody cross, the doorway of an empty tomb, and the promise of heaven. And it's in those three places where you find strength, you find hope, you find restoration, you find renewal, you find healing. You find those things in those places because that's where this baby, King Jesus, that's where his blood was shed. That's where he left a tomb empty in victory over Satan, sin, and death. And that's also where we have the hope of eternity. That this life is not all there is to our existence. Because though we live like in a world of contrasts between the wickedness and the worship that we see, ultimately we recognize that God has provided a way forward and through for eternity. He's done that in the person and the work of his son, Jesus, who was born as a baby king on Christmas. Amen? Would you stand with me? Father, I pray that you would meet us in a special way over the next few moments as we close. I pray, Father, that you would renew us, restore us, heal us, Call us back to you. Pray that you comfort us and give us hope. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.